So off we go. October the 29th, 2017. And today will be an introductory look at our next subjects. Primarily it'll be Joel chapter 2, Jeremiah chapters 2 and 3, and Revelation chapter 9, not necessarily in that order. And I have chosen not to complete Judges 16 this Sunday, which is lecture number 300, because Dave and Terry are unable to be here today. Dave had some surgery on his prostate, and um, he's recovering. And I thought it would be wise to wait until we can get number 300 properly placed onto all of our Internet venues. So we have decided not to do it. And thus, this is a last-minute substitution, and that seemed to be the best idea. So today is going to be a brief, cursory preview of what is coming, the coming attractions, if you will. But as you all are aware, all time references are relative terms. Brief being the foremost, perhaps only subordinate to soon. So what I call brief and what may be cursory to me may not seem that way to you. So let's be prepared for that. And before we start wading into this, into these texts and keeping in mind almost all that we covered today, I'm going to have to repeat. So if you get lost, don't despair. Uh, it's because I have to get it on the Internet and it just is very difficult material. And I won't repeat it not word for word, but it's always necessary whenever you do Joel and Revelation 9, Jeremiah 2 and 3, especially Revelation. Whenever you do this subject, there's great difficulty in keeping all the information chronological. I apologize for my voice. You can tell I'm still struggling in that that realm with this uh, persistent whatever it is I have. In other words, there's timeline issues to be succinct. Notice I've been giving you a lot of timelines to do. And, and the reason for that is, I hope, obvious, but if not, let's just, we'll go through it a little bit as we do this. The Bible is not always sequential, and when it's not, you need to know that. And if you don't know it, you'll be making mistakes. It can be quite a challenge to establish the chronology. And one uh, can assume that God has written his word this way purposely. He doesn't want it to be sequential. He doesn't want it to be chronological. He wants it out of order. Now, why would he do that? He wants, obviously, to lead his people, those who care about him, and his word to take the time to search it out. That's what he tells us to do. Search it out. And I propose it to be obvious that the Holy Spirit intends for us to do that, to do the math, to use the phrase, to work it out. It takes a lot of time. It's not easy. And most Christians have no idea that there's a chronological issue in the Bible or sequential. It's homework and it's painstakingly difficult. And very few have done it. I have Clarence Larkins, if you've heard me say, I have his work here. It is amazing the amount of time he devoted to doing this. And the benefit he got from it, we can't even imagine. Most people don't do it. They don't even read somebody who's done it. I would say there's not even 1% of Christians who undertake the commandment to search the Scripture. 
So what's the purpose of it? What is the benefit to doing this? And I get asked this a lot. Why doesn't God hide? What they say to me all the time, it's constant almost. Why does God hide himself and his meanings from me? They want to know. Why is it so hard? Why can't it be just so, make it simple? Why doesn't God make it simple? He put the manna on the ground I got the other day. A guy wrote me, he said he put the manna on the ground. Just give it to us. Just stop this searching, digging, thinking, hard mysteries. Make it easy. It's very common. And as you know, Proverbs 122 is the rebuke to that. The call of wisdom comes to all of us. And most hate wisdom. Most love the simple. It's, it's obvious. Watch your TV shows. Watch your movies. The simpler, the better. The bigger the audience. Those who search for wisdom are very few, and those who labor in the Word of God are rare. In the Laodicean church of this time, the chances that you know somebody that's going to a Laodicean church is 99%, because that's what we got left. Just how it is. It's exactly what Revelation 3.16 says will happen at the end of the church age. And we're at the end. And the Laodicean church of this time, this current age, loathes the seeking of knowledge. They loathe, the, they hate the searching process. They don't do it. They don't want to do it. They'll never do it. They're not interested. They want the milk. Passion has replaced reason in almost every aspect of our society, and it's obvious that it began in the church. There's open contempt for the meat. The difficult has no home in the church today. It's been deliberately expunged. And there's consequences to that. Consequences is uh, the longer one is soaking in the vat of the simplistic, the more adverse they will find the complex. The more you do elementary arithmetic, the worse you get at difficult mathematics. What our parents told us is exactly the case. Associating with hundreds of stupid people eventually makes one permanently stupid. So that's the fundamental truth. In this case... When you have no complexity of Scripture ever exposed to you, it's all the same thing. What do they call it in the uh, three chords, three courses, rinse, repeat, right? The music has in the church has become very, very redundant. Compare the music today, and I don't want to pick on us, uh, but compare the music today of that of Beethoven who wrote his Bach, who wrote his music because he believed God was listening. I know. Last week I talked about Ezekiel 13. You should read Ezekiel 13 at least once a month. Because there's the warning to you of what the church will be like at the end of the age of the Gentile. I know a lot of people after they hear this will accuse me of prefacing today's lecture with my boilerplate rant. Medicine, I'll have to choose one. That's only a joke if you're able to see this, and you will not be able to see this, but I have 
on my pedestal uh, five uh, Diet Cokes and a Worcestershire sauce bottle and a uh, half a case of Diet Coke on a chair sitting next to it. I have many choices today, which is good news for me. But I, I have this boilerplate rant a lot because I see the impending, imminent, oncoming uh, of what is happening to the church. And, and I can't stand it. I just can't stand it. it drives me it's so frustrating to watch what is presented today as a general rule. But I know, again, that that's what it's supposed to happen, and I have to just understand it and relax. It is good that it is this way. Some people will say, I, I rant this way because I'm about to present the most boring material I possibly can, and I want to try to get you to pay attention. Yes, I'm, you're laughing at that. I, I'll concede that might be the case. Okay, here we go. I wish I had you all at desks with a pad of paper. The church age is going to end. Here comes the end of the church age. And at that point, I have the abduction of the church or the taking of the bride or the rapture. You know, all of this, these supposed theologians who will say they're the rapture, the word rapture isn't in the Bible. Well, of course it is. It's catching up or taking of the bride. I wish we'd just call it the abducting of the bride to make, make it a lot simpler. They just have a new excuse. This is the church age. This is where we are. We're living here. The church age ends with the taking of the bride. We don't know how close we are. I'm hoping we're right here. Wouldn't that be cool? In fact, if we could shut this lecture down and be taken right now, that would be the greatest thing that we could ever imagine. If we're that generation that goes, that is an incredible thing. But look at my diagram so far. The church age is going to end with the taking of the bride or the abducting of the bride. And now, after that, at some point, we have the, uh, the covenant that is confirmed and we end up with the seven-year tribulation. And in this case, the seven-year, or as you know, the seven-year tribulation is divided into two three-and-a-half-year periods. There's a midpoint. This would be the midpoint. I'll make it more pronounced so that you can mid-tribulational. There is an intermission here. We don't know for sure the length of the intermission, but we know things happen at the midpoint of the tribulation. So we're going to we're going to have this that we are going to have two sections. Then we're going to have the first three and a half years and the second three and a half years. So far, does anyone need me to repeat that? And naturally, the first half. I'll make this a line right here, I guess, so that. You can see how it all goes. The first half of the tribulation is three and a half. The second half of the tribulation is three and a half. And there is, of course, a midpoint in both of these. So we have, if you want to think of it this way, naturally, the first half has a first half. And if you want to refer to that as the first quarter, that's absolutely appropriate. So, I have a first quarter. If I have a first quarter, what else do I have? 
I have a second quarter. If I have a second quarter, what do I have? A third quarter and a fourth quarter, right? Yay, ratios and fractions. So, obviously, if the first half of the tribulation is three and a half years in duration, and it is, then the first half of the first half is how many months? You have to figure that out. Go ahead and shout your answers. How long is the first quarter? How long is the first half? How long is the seven years in months? I'll help you. It's 84. How do I know that? Because the Hebrew way of reckoning is 30-day months. So it's 84 months. So that means each half will be how many? 42 months. That means each quarter will be how many? 21 months. There we go. Wasn't that fun? <sighs> Seven years, 12 months to a year, divided into four quarters of 21 months. As you know, I hope, and I want to say as you know, I hope you know, that two years is 24 months. Let me look. So far, so good. Two years is 24 months. Therefore, 21 months is less than two years. How about that, see? And if 42 months is three and a half years, how many years then is 21 months? Obviously, it is one and three-quarter years, or half of three and a half years. So anyway, the first half of the first half of the seven-year uh, tribulation, the first quarter, is 21 months, or one year and three-quarters. And a lot of things happen in this one year and three quarters, in both sides. Now, ask yourself, why is God doing this? Because he is. He has designed his tribulation to be two halves, and he has divided those halves into two halves, or quarters. Why did he do that? And when I say a lot of things happen, a lot of stuff happens here, none of it is good. Well, actually, some, uh, some is incredible. Some is amazing. It's salvation. Worldwide revival, 144,000. Lots of things is good. But great, great evil is revealed in the tribulation. That is one of the things that happens. And humanity finally sees the depth of the evil that exists. We have some idea that evil exists. We know what it does. We see evil a lot. But we only see the humanity evil. We do not see the supernatural evil. And that evil has been restrained, but is now unrestrained and unlocked in the tribulation. So, in the first quarter of the seven, in the first, in the first quarter, right here, I have the seven seals. That's, that's what's going to begin there. Eventually, I have to get to the seven trumpets. And today, we're going to be introducing or reintroducing, for, for those of you who have endured this previously, the seven trumpets primarily. To be precise, actually, the fifth and sixth trumpets, which is Revelation 9. 
So let's start reading this together and watch what happens. How many of you thought you went through this with me a couple of years ago? Actually, probably five or six years, maybe 20 years ago. I don't remember. Let me see if this will help. I'd say about 10 years ago. So here we are, Revelation 9. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. This is John. He has been called up to heaven. He gets to be outside of time and see the tribulational period. Again, then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. Genesis 15, so the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. So their power is similar to scorpions. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Again, we're in the tribulation. Where's this church? Where are you? Not here. And they were told to, and they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. The torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. So let's start start there. (coughs) Okay, the seven trumpets are in the second quarter. This is Revelation 8 and 9. And today, oh, I already said that part. So what's... Let's not confuse myself. Let's start with the fallen star. A fallen star happens. John sees him. And he's given a key. So the fallen star gets a key. The key opens the bottomless pit. Or what's also called the abyss. How deep is the abyss? He opens the abyss with the key. And great smoke comes out. Like a great and and um, and like a great furnace. So it's like a furnace is is pumping out smoke. You see this furnace reference in Genesis 15, first place that it's mentioned. And the sun and the air are darkened. It becomes really dark. So I have darkness, and it's the sun and the air. So what's been affected? Temperature and breathing. Will you agree? And then out of that comes these locusts. 
who have this capability to sting like scorpions, and they're given power. So they're, they now have power. What's implied? They didn't have the power before. It had to be given to them. So let's just go through some of the questions. How many questions do you think we have so far? We have a whole lot. An unbelievable amount. Let's go with the most obvious of the obvious questions. Who is the fallen star from heaven? Who is that? Who is the fallen star? When did he fall? Because the Bible is not necessarily chronological. And John is outside of time here. He's seeing time much like God sees time. His mind has to be expanded in order for that to occur. He has to physically be transformed to do this. But who is this fallen star from heaven? When did he fall? When did he get the key? He now has a key. How many keys are there? What do they go to? We know we have one key and it goes to the abyss. Who has all the keys? How many keys? Does somebody identify himself as the one who holds all the keys? If he does have all the keys, how many of these kinds of places do we have? Who's in them? Who gave him the key to the abyss? Is this a good thing? He's unlocking these things that are coming out. The earth is darkened. Heat is affected. Air is affected. They're pouring out. And they have the power to torment the men who do not, or mankind, who do not have a seal on their forehead. Right? So who who gave the key to the fallen star? Why did he who has the key give the fallen star the key? Why does it the, why is it the key to the bottomless pit? Who's in the bottomless pit? Why are they being released? Why are they in the bottomless pit in the first place? What's that? <laughs> Well, that's perfectly fine. If you need to move away from each other, it's, it happens every Sunday. Is she a heretic? Okay. <laughs> it's, would that be a heretic? <laughs> He's already bleeding on top of... <clears throat> Why are they released at the time they're released? How dark is dark? Who gave them the power? Why did they receive this particular power? Of all the power they could get, this is the one they're given. Why are they given this power? Did they want the power? Did they ask for the power? Did they expect to get the power? Is this a new power or an old power? If it's an old power, when did they have it and why was it taken from him? If it's a new power, why not and for what purposes are they given it? Who commanded them to not harm the grass or any green thing? Just a really quick aside. Has that happened anywhere else in the Bible? 
Yes, it has. What is a green thing in the context? Why are they not allowed to harm the grass or any green thing? Does it indicate that they would harm the grass or all the green things if they could have and they're restricted from doing so? Why do they have restrictions? Because they do. What's the purpose of the restriction? What's the purpose of all of it in the first place? Who's doing it? Take a guess. Who is giving them the power? Who has the keys? You get one choice. What's that? Jesus. You get a Skittle. You know, that's how Sunday school works. You have a whole bunch of chocolate candies and you ask the kids a question and they say, Jesus, and you have them candy. And it's always Jesus and they get more candy. That's how it works in churches. That's how we control them. But candy and NyQuil. That's how it's done. They should need to know the bowels, the inner workings of the children's ministry. Christ is giving the fallen star a key. Why does he do that? Fallen star opens the abyss, out comes these beings, and God gives them power and restrictions. What is God doing? Why is this happening? Why do they obey the commandment? That's the easiest question of the day. He commands them they can't kill men, anybody. They can't kill anybody. They can't kill the green things. They can't kill the, the grass. Can they kill animals? It's not in the text necessarily. You decide. Would they kill animals? Of course they would kill animals. Why would they kill animals? Start thinking it through. But they can't kill anybody, and there are some people that they can't even torment. Who are the ones that they can't torment? Who are the sealed men, the sealed of mankind? And in this case, I'll tell you, they actually are men. And who are the unsealed? Why is this happening? To keep repeating all of this. Why are the abyssites, for lack of a better term, not allowed to kill the unsealed of mankind? And why is this allowed to go on for 150 days? Five months. What's so special about five months? And you can imagine the numerologists have gone crazy with this, trying to figure it out. And lastly, for these verses... This is the extraordinary part of it. This is this um, unbelievable. You can't even begin to imagine this. I'm going to try to make you to imagine it. Is this suspension of death. Death is removed from the earth. Physical death is removed from the earth for five months. That's what it says. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. Now that is incomprehensible. I hope you can recognize that. I hope you can look at the reality of it. The comprehensiveness of it. What I mean, for example, somebody is being tortured, tormented by these things. And there are millions and millions and millions of them. Hundreds of millions of them. And they are tormenting the unsealed. And the unsealed seek to die, but they cannot die. 
So consider the situation. For example, what do they do? How do they learn they can't die? When's the first time they learn nobody's dying? Now we, Dana and I have had all these very, very complicated discussions about resurrection lately. And resurrection is amazing. It just can't, it's so, when you begin to say, what does it take from a biological standpoint to resurrect a human being? Or an animal? Or a fly? What does it take? What's the biology of that? What would it take to resurrect a human being that has been destroyed, physically destroyed, by that either nuclear, uh, crushed, beheaded, dismembered, rotten? What does it take to resurrect them? And to what, the discussion that Dana and I have been having is, what position would God put them in? And we've had that discussion before, but it's a wonderful thing, and it really fits here. No one dies now. No one. What does that mean? At the same time, they're being tortured. Can't be killed. Can they be bound? Can they be confined? Let's assume that they're not confined. Does mankind attempt to leap off of buildings? Does he try to drown himself? Jump from a cliff? Burn himself, shoot himself, starve. Men will seek, in those days, men will seek death and they will not find it. God stops death. Who can do that? I mean, just imagine, death is stopped. He's doing that in the tribulation. Why is he doing it? He does it for five months and no one can die. Does man try to die? I think he does. But he can't. Nothing you can do. Now, isn't that amazing? So, for five months, 150 days, no human being dies. Try to anticipate the response of mankind to this. Imagine the condition, the intense physical suffering, but no death. What are they thinking while this is happening? And it goes on for five months. But the sealed, and I'll tell you today, the sealed are the 144,000 of the previous chapter, chapter 7. God goes and seals 144,000 young Jewish men. They are unaffected. They're not dying ever again either, as an aside. Notice I did not say, by the way. They're not dying either. And they don't die. They can't be killed and they know it. Do you need food? You don't. You can't die. Nothing ha- Your body functions no matter what. I have 144,000 young Jewish men who are saved men who believe in Christ who have this seal on them and they are protected by God, and they're walking about in the midst of this inconceivable turmoil. The sealed are tasked with explaining the purpose of the true Creator God for this five-month period, primarily. 
So I have them and I have the unsealed. The sealed and the unsealed simultaneously. The unsealed, this cannot be explained. But the sealed are explaining it. I hope that makes some sense. The sealed are tasked with explaining the purpose of the true creator God for his implementing this five-month period. There's suffering, there's torment, but there's no death, no end. So start thinking about that. There's suffering, there's torment, but there's no death, no no end. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely there's salvation going on in this. That's exactly what is happening. But again, let me repeat. Suffering, torment, no death, and no end to it. What is that? This time it's five months. What is it eventually? It is the lake of fire. He is replicating the lake of fire for the people in the tribulation. Darkness, no death, and suffering. Every human being on earth gets a five-month lesson in what is coming. And 144,000 Jewish men to tell them about why it's happening. Yes, ma'am. Well, that's a wonderful question. She's asking about children. There's two views, as you know. The view that the households of the bride are taken, and that would include the children, because the children are mine, the children come to me. (coughs) Every child that is in the tribulation, let me say this, that dies is what? Saved. They are not to the age of accountability. Well, we'll, well, let me see if I can answer that in a second. Okay? But what Anna is asking is, are there children involved in this five-month period? Are there children in the tribulation? And if so, what is their fate? Their fate is salvation. Their destiny is salvation. Do they die physically? Do I have animals here? What is the fate or the destination of animals? They will not reject God. They have an eternal soul. So they do not have, they do not suffer the destiny of the lake of fire. But let's see if I can answer it by going on. Again, what is God saying to the world? Let's read the remaining verses. Now it does uh, that described this first invasion. There are two invasions. Let me say that. One that torments and one that kills. We're talking about the torment. We're going to go to the one that kills uh, in the weeks to come. We're assessing the first assault. The second assault kills one-third of humanity. And all of that causes the most unequivocal of the unequivocal questions. Man cannot be killed. That is That is clearly defined in this five-month period. But how about these things that are attacking can they be killed? Let's imagine that uh, Cliffside is here. We won't be, but let's imagine. Concede the hypothesis, but it won't happen. But let's go ahead and say the Cliffside's there, and these things are storming us. How many bullets do we have in this congregation? 
a lot more than anybody could ever imagine. What are we going to be doing? We're sending for more weapons and we're shooting what we can, aren't we? If it were to happen to us, and we could see we are in the midst of this, this is actually great news. I mean, you have evidence that you cannot even begin to describe to yourself. In case you had any doubt, you have no doubt. You are fearless. But let me go back. Can these things that are attacking, can they be killed? Will those afflicted, in other words, be able to kill the things or their tormentors, the ones that torment them? And if so, why has God set these parameters? What's the lesson for humanity? <coughs> Excuse me. What then is the lesson for those that have come out of the abyss? Because there's lessons for both sides. We always think about ourselves. We think this is about humanity. It isn't just about humanity. It is also about the beings that are in the abyss. He lets them out. Why does he let them out? He allows them to attack. He puts parameters, restrictions on them. He has set these parameters. Why does he do it? What's the lesson for them? Because they get one. They started this. What is the lesson for the beings that are being released from the abyss? To repeat that. Now, let's start and let's repeat, or let's go on some more. Revelation 9, 7 through 12, because there's more things. The shape, (coughs) excuse me, the shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold! Two woes still coming. And I, that just, when you read that, you, I hope you are stunned by it. You got worse coming. It gets worse. The old adage, it's got to get worse before it gets worse. So note the description of those who are released. Were they created this way? Is this their, their created status? Or have they modified themselves? If they did modify themselves, when did they do it and why did they do it? Notice also the king of the bottomless pit is Abaddon. Abaddon is the Hebrew word for destroyer. The king of the bottomless pit is the destroyer. When did the king get into the bottomless pit? Is the king of the bottomless pit and the fallen star the same one? The fallen and fallen star, he has the key. The king of the bottomless pit is already in the bottomless pit. When did the king get into the bottomless pit? Who is the king of the bottomless pit? Does it tell us who the king of the bottomless pit is someplace else? I think it does. 
But it clearly is not the fallen star who was given the key. So how many of you have the Satan position on the fallen star who was given the key? In other words, Satan is the fallen star who was given the key. If he is, he's not the king of the bottomless pit. Does he know who the king of the bottomless pit is? Yes, he does. How does he know him? But I'm submitting today for you that there are two individuals. And again, note the behold. Behold. Two more woes are coming. Wow. The woes to come are beholds. What was this that just happened? This is, this is a, the beginning of the beholds. It just gets horrifying from here. Now, really fast. Joel 2. Here we go. And we'll, let's see how far we'll go here. I'll probably shut it down here really fast. A lot to read, but this is Joel 2. We'll start at verse 1 and probably get to 14, maybe a little further. I'd like to get further. See how I do. So go ahead, turn to that. You need to follow along. So on page 1271. Yeah, that's helpful. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Okay, somebody's got to blow a trumpet. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. That's Jerusalem. That's Israel. And let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, ever, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them. Wow, now where are we in the Bible again? Genesis 3, here we go again, right? And behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like swift steeds so they run. With a noise like chariots over the mountaintops they leap. Like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble. Like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation. They do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark. The stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army. For his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and terrible. Who can endure it? Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. 
Rend your garment, or I'm sorry, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. Who knows if He will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babies. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Who's the bride? Who's the bridegroom? Let the priest who minister to the Lord weep before the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? And hopefully you have recognized the relationship between Joel 2 and Revelation 9. huh? There you go. Similarities are unmistakable. It's necessary to compare them, to add Joel 2 to Revelation 9. That is apparent, necessary. Joel 2 begins with the blowing of the trumpet, the ram's horn. It is blown by the watchman over Israel who has seen this happen. He can see it. Here they come. Here comes the dark cloud of locusts, and it's coming for Israel. First and foremost, but it's coming across all of the world. Great danger is moving quickly. There is fear. Many have discovered the order of Joel 2 and Revelation 9 has its origin in Exodus 10. Let me repeat that. That might not have come out very well. Many commentators, many scholars have figured out that the order of Joel 2, the order of Revelation 9, and the order of Exodus 10 are the same This is the eighth plague. However, now it is coming, not just for Egypt. And they have recognized or realized that the Garden of Eden, once again, Genesis 3, is going to be of great importance to understanding the meaning of this event. But for today, my only goal has been Joel 2, 12 through 17, which hopefully in your Bible has this heading, because mine does, appropriately so. It is a call to repentance. God has exposed something to mankind. He has exposed the true reality of the darkness. He has exposed what's in the abyss. When you see what's in the abyss, you begin to think about why it's there, how it got there. And here it is. He's released the evil. Why did he do it? Why didn't he leave the evil in the abyss? He could have. Instead, he releases it. What does he accomplish by releasing this great and evil? What's he prove? He proves that it's evil. If you have any doubts about what the angels, the fallen angels of Satan and Abaddon think of humanity, you will have no doubt, all doubt removed. How can Abaddon turn men to worship him? How can he do that after this? It seems it should be impossible. It is not. 
God releases the evil so the evil can be known. He puts a restriction on it. Why does he put a restriction? He puts a time limit on it. Why does he put a time limit? Why does he always put a time limit? Why does he always put restrictions? Because he's calling for repentance. You have a chance. Everybody on the earth has a chance. So who's going to choose? How's he describing himself? Who's going to choose the, the gracious and merciful, the one of great con, uh, kindness? Who's going to choose him? Who will repent and turn towards he who has created you? He who is loving and merciful, full of grace, slow to anger, of great kindness. And who will reject him and choose the darkness, the destroyer, the destruction. But there will be nobody that doesn't know possibility that somebody makes a decision in ignorance in the tribulation is zero. Everyone knows and everyone knows that everyone knows. There is no one who is ignorant of what evil is. Evil is obvious. It is revealed as obvious. And who it is and what they want. There can be no choice made in what's the word I'm looking for? Disarray, that's not it. Misunderstanding. There is no misunderstanding. No one could say, well, I, I was confused. There will be no confusion in the tribulation. It will be solid, positive, not open for discussion. So who will choose evil? Most. But some won't. And that's the purpose. He will gather everyone who will seek him.